Welcome to Where Are We Going? I'm Jason Weedle. Happy New Year. It's 2016. We are excited to be back. Today's show is about art and its relationship with Christianity. If you're new to Where Are We Going, please check out past shows. You can find them at mediascorchpodcasts.com or on iTunes under Media Scorch. Look for our past episodes of Where Are We Going featuring fantastic interviews around important topics. Look for the Film Matters show where we discuss films, movies, and light of faith and the Innovations program which features extended interviews with those on the Where Are We Going podcast. Dear God, I pray and close these eyes, knock these dice, I pray to win. Like last penny, itching to scratch a million out of one last dollar. Like the difference between 10 seconds, 10 yards, and a touchdown. Like dropping coins into slot machine wishing wells. All the world's a casino. All the men and women are merely gamblers, placing bets, counting chips, calculating risks. And these little bitty arms have tried their hand at boxing with God. Arms never long enough. Mind never smart enough to outfox him because he knows exactly what to do to get me to honestly pray him. Where I forget the cliches and all the stuff I say to make up for my lack of faith and trust when I ain't got nothing else to give except giving up. That is Amina Brown, who is a spoken word poet I talked with Amina about her poetry and performance and about art in general in Christian circles. I like to think of spoken word as if hip hop and jazz had a poetry baby. (laughs) I feel like it is poetry. It is free verse poetry. It is not uh, the traditional sonnet or sestina or limerick or haiku that you may have studied in school. Uh, But I would say the style of what it is that I'm doing is also very uh, hip-hop influenced in its wordplay and uh, jazz influenced in its rhythm. I've discovered there is no formula or equation to breaking rhythms. It is found in the way my grandmother can cook a whole meal with no recipe. In the way Grandmaster Flash took two records, a crossfader and his fingertips, and made new music. The way Jesus, without curriculum, bullet points, or pro presenter, showed his disciples how to really live. When I first started performing spoken word, which this was in the late 90s now, so... This was right before Deaf Poetry Jam started and right after the movie Love Jones came out where Lorenz Tate played a spoken word poet in a film, you know, that was kind of the first time that a lot of poets are performing today were really exposed to spoken word and anything mainstream. Um, so yes, I think it is, it is definitely written to be, to be said aloud yeah. um, and loudly depending on the piece. Yeah. <laughs> 
and and the things that you are doing can you can you talk a little bit about what are the kinds of things that you're performing and 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 what is your kind of performance made up of i feel like i end up in a lot of varied environments performing spoken word poetry sometimes that's at like a, a corporate or leadership gathering sometimes mm-hmm. it's definitely in uh, quite a few faith-based environments um churches or faith-based conferences or uh, some Christian colleges. Uh, my husband and I still host an open mic here in Atlanta where we call home. So sometimes it's a coffee house where you're trying to say your poem over the barista, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trying to get all the lattes finished. So uh, it can be really varied, which I actually love. What does, what as you are performing and writing and, and, um, developing what you do, what does it mean for you to be creating and to be an artist? It means so much to me. I, I have the privilege and honor of being able to do my art as my full-time job. But even if this weren't my full-time job, I would still do it. And I was doing it before it was my full-time job. It's just the way I express myself. It's what inspires me, I feel like I'm having backlog in my mind if I haven't written. Um, and sometimes after a while, too, after, if I haven't, you know, performed on stage. So I, I love art. I think it's so important. I think, um, I think for me, it is an interesting journey being an artist and a Christian and doing that in predominantly what we would deem to be Christian or faith-based type environments, especially because spoken word wasn't born out of that environment. Yeah, Spoken word was born in these, you know, kind of beatnik hole in the wall places that most spoken word poets are still performing, you know, in those spaces. That's where it was born. It was that kind of room where I cut my chops initially as a performer uh, so I, I never had any thought or design to to do that in a church setting. I almost felt like a lot of people go to poetry events or go to open mics because for a lot of people that is church for them. That is the place where you are sort of gaining this encouragement for your soul and able to give voice to grief and lament and and those kinds of things. So I think I sort of, I like to belong in both places. Um, I, I always love the honor and the privilege to talk about Jesus through the art form that I'm doing. Um, and I also love to talk about hip hop and breakups and love and friends and whatever else comes to mind too. So I do that in faith-based environments and I'm in plenty of environments where they're not necessarily faith-based. It's just people getting together because they love poetry or because they love music. And so uh, that's why my husband and I love to still host our open mic here and, and really be connected as much as we can to our local poetry scene. That's hugely important to me. Yeah. Within that, within that kind of church environment, that, that Christian space where sometimes art exists, um, what, what does, what purpose do you think it? should have i think of as you were talking you know you're talking about the the Hmm. grief and lament and the same time the talking about jesus and and 
you know, I think it's exciting to think of art in in ways where it can express certain ideas and and of a, such a wide range of variety. Um, but I think some people get frustrated with art within the church because it doesn't express the whole range of human experience. We limit it to a certain kind of thing. Do you think that's true? I would agree with that. I think I think there's a couple of things uh, at play there for me. I'm I'm married to a DJ, and so I've had even before my husband and I were married. I've just always been like, like a big fan of of hip hop culture, and so that involves going to hip hop shows and going to see DJs perform. And I think some of it is, I think some of us as Christians lose our ability to go to things for art's sake. Yeah. And I think when we're in church, we, we are thinking about this message that is the centerpiece of everything, this gospel, this good news that is Jesus. We are thinking about that. And so we plan our services and conferences and things around that truth, which I think is important. But in our doing that, we sort of make it seem like if art doesn't explicitly express the gospel in this way, then it doesn't work for us Mm -hmm. or it doesn't help people to see God or see Jesus in this way. And I think we start doing that because we get into having more meetings and doing planning center more than we are going to see people just play music live or just perform poetry or just walking the art gallery and seeing the pieces. And I think when we do the other part more, when we experience art more, then we take the pressure off of what we think art should have to be because we can let the art be what it is and that God is going to do what God does all the time, which is shine. So whether my poem is explicitly about the cross or the crucifixion or Easter or Advent, whatever those things are that we deem to be a part of our gospel message, a poem I write about my best friend could also shine of God. Um, so I think I think sometimes that's where that tension comes in, that we want the art to do what we want it to do within the time frame we say do this. Whereas if I go to watch a jazz band play, there's no one there to go, well, before the saxophone player plays, that's a metaphor for the, you know, there's yeah. no one to do that. You're there to just hear the saxophone riffs and hear what the bass does and hear what the piano's doing and feel what that does to your own soul and let that bring to you what it does. But I think that is the work that the spirit does. And we would, we would do better, I think, to let the spirit do the work he does through the art instead of feeling like we got to force the art to be a thing. I spoke with Tevia East, who is a dancer, Jay Beck, who is a musician, and together they are the organizers of the Festival Day Resistance, which is a touring event that tries to use performance art and a carnival atmosphere to convey some deep truths about God and Christianity and the Christian's responsibility and place in the world 
And we talked about art. We talked about some of these ideas that that Amina brings up about what is art for the Christian and what is our response to it? What should our response to art be? Well, I would say a lot of faith communities do consider themselves receptive to art, but are still have this air of suspicion, um, especially around bodily uh, embodiment, um, and especially around um, experimentation. So a a lot of the art forms, the visual art, uh, music, and dance um, that we encounter in our faith worlds, I would say is not embracing of um, the sort of cutting edge, uh, uh, the vitality of what is happening in the arts world um, within each of those forums. So the the uh, suspicion um, of the body needs to be confronted. That the the ways in which the puritanical uh, fear of flesh continues to sort of weave throughout our our. Um, cultural narratives, that needs to be confronted. Um, What else, Jay? Well, I think, you know, there's lots of historical stuff, just like what you're saying. Like, the, I mean, the church has been part of the white supremacist power in, you know, historically. And so, you know, there, there were documents where they specifically suppressed drumming traditions and took the drums from uh, indigenous cultures and called them demonic and burned them and wouldn't allow them to be used for worship. Um, There's aspects of, you know, so it's been antagonistic to culture and arts are part of how culture gets expressed, except for the one right culture, you know, which was usually the, you know, the white people in power got to decide um, what was appropriate to be used in expressing culture. And so that was, you know, for many uh, denominations historically, that would be, you know, singing quietly with maybe an organ or an acoustic guitar, right? You can't have... Uh, and you know, in, in the dominant culture, church that is the one that are usually have a problem engaging with the arts. Sure. If you look at the black church tradition, they got no problem with it. They're leading the way, and they always have been. You know, this they're 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 the freedom song writers. They're the ones we need to be under their discipleship of how to do art and faith right. Is is understanding how the the oppressed cultures worship forms have engaged with their arts and culture and kept the spirit and the movement alive and so we need to be you know we need to be thinking of them as our elders and our leaders and and listening to how they do that form and i I just heard william barber over here and i I wrote it down he said um they were talking about kind of the racial division in a lot of our worship and he said if we get the right rhythms in justice, we will be united in joy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. That, uh, and it sounds like that's some of what you're wanting to accomplish, not just the, not, not just a show, but that we're all moving together towards something that's world-changing mm-hmm. and life-changing. Can you tell us just a, a minute about what, what you're sharing here at the festival? This year, yep. We are going to be doing a, uh, we think of it as a, a worship time. At 4 o'clock, 4 p.m., and on Saturday, tomorrow, down at the River Stage, um, we're doing a, a worship time that is a 
liturgical movement, ceremonial theater, and uh, bringing some aspects of the carnival in themed around what we're calling the struggle of the earth and the struggle of the people are one. Um, a uh, confession and a, a lament litany that a friend of ours, Sarah Thompson, who's part of our carnival crew, wrote, and we're taking that theme to, you know, the festival's theme this year is, is peacemakers, and we wanted to really connect um, environmental justice to the theme of peacemaking. So we are going to be thinking about how what's happening to the earth is so intricately connected to all of the things around making peace, both. Uh, with race issues and economic issues and um, inclusion issues and uh, ev- everything and and that our the way we treat creation and our relationship and the healing of the land it will is intimately connected to all other relationships and so looking at some of that um, moving through some Thanksgiving time some lament and grieving and some celebration will be a kind of a collage mix of drumming, singing, dancing, poetry, theater, and, and uh, interactive ritual. That conversation was at a live event where Tevya and Jay were both doing some presentations, and you hear a little bit about the things that they were participating in, the things that they were leading and guiding. And I think it is a bit challenging because it might stretch the ideas of what we view as ministry, as art that's appropriate in church environments, but we also see in it the conflict that often exists within Christian circles regarding what art should be, what art is appropriate, how we should use art to understand God to lead people to him? How much of ourselves should we be expressing in the art that we present in church, in Christian circles? Amina Brown talks a little bit more about this. I started off in in worship environments or what we would deem that to be. And so in that environment, when you're doing spoken word, during a worship set of songs, you are not supposed to be seen. The job of you as an artist standing there, whether you're singing or in my case, doing a poem, is supposed to be that you become invisible, that you are, all you're doing is pointing people to God. Well, then after a couple of years of doing that, I went back into the open mic setting and one of the poets there, I actually ran into her recently and recounted this story to her. She didn't even remember that she said this to me, but it totally wrecked me and also helped me a lot as an artist. But she turned to me after I'd been going to the open mic a few weeks and I was just kind of doing my stuff that I had been writing lately, which all of it had been stuff that I'd been doing in like a worship setting. And she said to me, she said, you know, when I hear other people's poems, Amina, I feel like I get to know them. But when I hear your poems, I feel like I don't get to know you. And I just remember going home and being like really messed up over it. Like, well, what does that mean? Am I hiding? Am I, you know, and then I realized I've, I've leaned too far over to the left side of thinking that 
the only way for God to shine through the art I make is if it is a love letter to God, is if it is written in this, you know, second or first person, you know, or third person account, you know, to or about God. And I realized after she said that to me that I can also tell a story about my grandmother in a poem and that God can shine through that. Even if I don't even mention like the name of Jesus, but it took me a long time to to not feel like it was a sin to be seen. Put my life on hold, barter with God for a compromise, trying to minimize my sacrifice, hoping if I raise him a Sunday morning, maybe he won't see my Friday night. But ain't no betting with God unless you're betting it all. That's heart, mind, body, soul. So most times, I fold. And with every lie, the stakes get high until I'm in over my head in a debt I'll never repay until this humble hustler asks the dealer to deal him in, says if he wins this hand, all debts are on him, but we don't believe him. He looks too new to the scene, like he never cashed in a chip, never smelled the scent of newly vented green, but he just smiles and holds his cards close to the chest, says focus on hearts and let the rest worry about itself. See, he came to pay debt with death so I could see him face to face. And when it was time to pay up, Jesus stood in my place. And that's how I know there's more to grace than bowing heads and praying over meals. See, it's not how much good I can do. God just wants me to yield. These little bitty arms have tried their hand at boxing with God, and now this heart is going to take a chance at betting it all. The next segment is a conversation that I had with Gareth Higgins. Gareth is a writer, hosts a variety of events, including a film festival called Movies and Meeting. And he talks a little bit about the festival, including his deep interest in filmmaking and in the stories that we tell as a culture, and how our stories and the art that we create through cinema is affecting the world around us. Movies and Meaning is a, a, it's a different kind of film festival uh, in that it's focused consciously on the idea of making a better world through the stories we tell. I, I believe firmly that our identities are formed uh, in conversation with the stories we're telling ourselves about ourselves. And if we have a distorted uh, version of the story, for instance, a story in which we're always the victim uh, uh, and at an individual level, or a story in which uh, violence or force or you know ultimate power always uh, brings order out of chaos, then I think we're going to have lives that are full of conflict that will perpetuate uh, division and suffering in in the world. And this is an this is an ancient truth, and it's been it's been researched for hundreds of years. And it's been particularly, uh, I think, comprehended by uh, the uh, theologian and philosopher René Girard and uh, someone who, who was really influenced by him, Walter Wink, 
theologian who wrote about power and violence and who I got to know as a mentor. And what Walter really taught me was that if you tell the story in such a way that violence always resolves things, then you're just going to replicate that in your life, starting with the violence you do to yourself in terms of your own self-image, the violence you do to others in terms of how you treat them, and how many of us are willing to tolerate violence, that if we really sat down and thought about it, if it was happening to us or if we were directly carrying it out ourselves, uh, we would pause. Um, So Movies and Meaning is rooted in this idea that the stories we tell are very powerful. Most of us are unconsciously playing out a story and it's a good idea. It's part of the task of emotional maturity and and, and thriving and happiness in the world to start to think about those stories. And I think movies are among the most powerful storytelling mediums. So we bring people together in one of the most beautiful movie theaters in the country, if not the the world, the Chemo Theater in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a beautiful, exquisite theater. It's 90 years old. It has 650 seats. It has a balcony and a big proscenium arch. It's a real palace. Uh, And we watch films, uh, new uh, surprising films and, and older classic iconic films. And then we have an opportunity to work with what those stories stirred up in, in us, what did they make us feel? What did they make us think? How did they challenge us? And uh, we have uh, speakers like the, the distinguished spiritual activist Richard Rohr, uh, who helps us think through some of those things. Um, we have poetry, we have dancing, we have uh, ways of taking the ideas and the images and turning them into personally transformative exercises. That's that's really really interesting, and I I appreciate what you have to say about story and the stories that we tell. Do you think in general the stories that we are telling through film and through television and and just in general is going in the right direction? And I kind of ask because I think about this in um, very often when I hear the criticisms that come especially from some parts of Christianity about this just decline into immorality and this slide yeah. toward hell. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I, I, I look around often and I, you know, looking at the stories that we are telling are a reflection of, of basically the values of our culture. And it seems to me that the values of our culture are not perfect, but are on the right track. Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view that you just suggested in 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 Woody Allen's film Midnight in Paris uh there's a a a lovely funny bit where Owen Wilson travels back into that I think it's the 1920s and he's talking to people like Salvador Dali and Toulouse-Lautrec and and you know some of the great um uh artists and Ernest Hemingway people who were living in Paris at the time and and he he catches this sense from our time in the contemporary world in the twenty in the twenty tens of oh my goodness wouldn't it have been great to have been in Paris in the nineteen twenties that that was the golden age and then he's talking to people in the nineteen twenties and one of them says oh you should have seen what it was like in the eighteen nineties that was that was when you really wanted to be around and I understand that nostalgia uh, and um, uh, this is not to suggest there were not uh, uh, things we can learn from in the past. But uh, I think some of the best research out there 
shows that a lot of things are actually getting better in the world. Um, what's happening that distorts our vision is we tend to see what's right in front of our face more closely. Of course, that's just a natural uh, reality. There's, there's actually a psychological term uh, for this. It's called the availability heuristic. What the availability heuristic is, uh, is it's, a, it's the title given to the way human beings predict probability. Uh, so if I ask you, how likely do you think there's going to be a hurricane? Uh, your answer to that question will depend on how easily you can recall examples of hurricanes happening uh, in the context that I'm questioning right. you about. If you ask uh, someone who is suffering uh, grievously from an experience of violence, and we're recording this podcast just 10 days after uh, the, the, the attacks in Paris, so, and, and, and I have a particular resonance with those attacks, having grown up in, in Northern Ireland, although we never had an attack that, that took us many lives. Uh, we certainly had the experience of living with the threat of violence and of the possibility and of the reality of it erupting anytime, anyplace. Um, and so you ask people who are very close to violence, how likely do you think violence is, is going to be? Their answer will be skewed by how easily they can recall uh, those examples. Sure. Globalization and, and um, uh, electronic connection has brought stories of horror closer to us more frequently than at any point in human history. Until not very long ago, humans only heard stories from their own village and maybe never even left their village during their lifetimes. So I think our, our brains haven't caught up evolutionarily uh, with the sociological fact that we are so connected. Um, the, the best research uh, around today seems to be suggesting that globally, uh, violence has been declining radically over time and that we're now globally living in the most peaceable time in human history. Now, I know that that is not a comfort to people who are experiencing uh, a terrorist uh, act or a civil war in this particular moment. That's why I say this is a global uh, uh, reality. The good news for those of us who are close to experiences of violence is we know more than we've ever known about how to prevent violence, about how to reduce violence. What uh, the uh, philosopher Peter Singer calls the expanding circle of empathy uh, has become the accepted norm in intelligent conversation. So intelligent conversation, mainstream conversation, can't be as racist as it used to be and get away with it. It can't be as homophobic as it used to be. It can't be as patriarchal as it used to be uh, because a different conversation has overtaken uh, those prejudices. You know, you, you mentioned just the exposure that we have just in general, that we can see not just the hurricanes, but we can see the violence that's going on around the world. So we have an expectation that it's more, uh, that, that it's happening more frequently than maybe it really is, that we are at a greater danger than we really are. Do you think there is damage done to us if we have more exposure in, from film, whether it's a, fictional accounts and just, you know, explosive summer blockbusters or whether it is more um, 
historical accounts and and movies that we sometimes feel are important, but is that doing something to our understanding of how much violence is in the world? Oh yeah, unquestionably. I mean, if you if you think about how we learn, we we learn through repetition, through repeated exposure. So you know, when you're learning how to how to how to count, you repeat the times table. Um, People learn theology, particularly through singing worship songs. Uh, uh, they're sing- singing uh, hymns. People learn about their national identity through things like pledging allegiance to the to the flag and the kinds of statements that presidents make re- repeatedly. It doesn't matter what party they come from or what their shade of, of uh, uh, social uh, polity might be. They're always going to say uh, that America is the greatest nation in, in the world. The American military is the greatest fighting force the world has ever seen. And those are just cliches. They may or may not have some truth to them, but we, we learn through repetition. So unquestionably it's the case if you repeatedly expose yourself to a story arc in which bad guys never actually have any comprehensible motivation for what they do and all ultimate force by the good guy is justified because of the nature of what the bad guy does and the only way uh, to eliminate the bad guy is through destroying them, then of course you're going to be more apt to support those kinds of policies in the real world. Uh, whereas if you uh, ex- intentionally and consciously seek out stories that offer an alternative, and I'm not saying that you, know, you only have to watch Gandhi, the, 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 the movie of, of, of Gandhi's life. I, I'm actually interested in films that tell stories about violence that are truthful. And for me, the difference between a violent story and a story about violence is, does it tell you the truth about how violence happens, why it happens, what its impact is, and how it can be resolved? So I don't mind if I watch a film that's horrifying I actually prefer to be horrified if it's about real-world violence. Real-world violence should horrify us. Hmm. Um, If I watch a film that tells me why someone ended up acting out the way they did, uh, I think that's good news for the world because it can influence the way we think about uh, addressing people's lives before such violence manifests. Um, An amazing recent example... I'm going to try to avoid spoilers here. I don't know if you've seen the recent James Bond film, Spectre. Have you, have you seen it? I, ha- I have not, no. Okay, so um, the, part of the answer to your earlier question, you know, are things getting better in film? Again, I don't know what the proportions are, but I am seeing more examples of stories that try to be a little more truthful about violence. And remarkably enough, the new James Bond film deals with the bad guy in a careful, thoughtful, merciful, practical way that actually invokes the value of democracy uh, over the quick fix of ultimate destruction. When you talk about uh, about so many of our attitudes, perceptions being rooted in fear... Um, I think of the the movie that came out a couple of years ago, God's Not Dead. Yeah. Did you see that? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> I I um the movie resonated with so many evangelical Christians. And I think the reason is is that it it held up this particular worldview um that is exactly what they want to see. Yeah. Um but I don't think it's true. Uh-huh. Um, and and just as you were talking about the fear, I, I, I think that it confirmed so many of those fears, that the, uh, those fears of atheists, fears of Muslims, fears of the dominant culture, fears of secularism. Um, but it showed that as long as we hold to a certain perspective and speak out when we should, that our God will overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but for for so many, so much of that audience, and the and the 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 film was, I think, surprisingly successful. Uh, for so much of that audience, that movie was true. Um, yeah. But for many, many others, it was simply the perspective that's locked into a certain kind of worldview that only a minority of Americans hold to. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, do we, how do we become people who are able to differentiate what is simply confirming our own worldview or something that is holding a, a bigger and better truth? Well, and maybe it doesn't feel better, um, yeah. because the the move the movie that is more true is probably saying things don't always work out the way you think they should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's I, I'm sure there's some truth in God's Not Dead, just as I uh, there's some truth in D- D- Django Unchained. Um, I said Django, um, <laughs> which which is really interesting. It's the first time I've mispronounced it. It's Django Unchained, um, which is from a completely opposite end of the, the, the political, theoretical, philosophical uh, spectrum. Um, but the, the, and the reason I bring up Django is Django is a film which uh, people might forget. It, it actually came out a year before, or about 10 months before 12 Years a Slave. And it was at that point the most stark portrayal of uh, slavery in America that I'd ever seen in cinema, and Twelve Years a Slave ex- exceeded that. Uh, but I was really struck, really horrified by by Django, and then I was also horrified by the fact that Tarantino resolved the problem by having Django use Titanic ultimate force and massacring everybody who depressed him. Right. Um, which you know, aside from anything else, it's it's it, it, that isn't what history tells us about how social movements work. You know, history tells us that 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 less violent and nonviolent social movements tend to produce more stable societies than violent revolutions do. So even if you just really love violence and you really want to see Django burn the house down, um, it's not in your long term interests to you know, quote-unquote, resolve your problem through ultimate force. And what I know of God's not, not dead, it's not in your ultimate interest to beat your philosophical opponent into submission 
and to prove that you were right all along so that your closed set, your closed identity set can feel safe and stable for just a little while longer because I just don't think that's the way peace works. The way peace works is when one human being opens their heart to difference in another. Now, as someone who's identified as a, as a progressive and someone with evangelical roots uh, who has, has, has moved away from those, that has to work in both directions. I have to open my heart um, to the beauty and truth and light and love in the hearts of the people who I would dispute their uh, intellectual and ideological foundations. The way we have conversations about that is going to determine the outcome. The fact is, most of us aren't even having those conversations. We're not even talking uh, with people who are different. I come from a society where eventually uh, people started having conversations with each other who literally would have advocated each other's death. Prior, to, even even and, and, and even when they were talking with each other, their movements were still active in supporting or legitimizing violence. And as a result of those conversations over decades, the descendants, if you like, of those political movements now share power together in government. Violence has drastically reduced. And instead of advocating each other's death, they now argue with each other politically. And sometimes they even agree. It's not a perfect situation, but it's a lot better than killing each other. Mm. Um, your question was about how, like, how do we unlock ourselves? I can't speak for the people to whom God's Not Dead really appealed. And I can't speak to the people who really thought Django was the most amazing film they'd ever seen. I can only speak for myself. And the one thing I'd say is I've learned from people who are willing to open themselves to the possibility that there might be more truth to learn. I had an old professor who said that to him, being a liberal meant asserting that the possibilities of truth have not been exhausted. And so that's why a liberal opposes the, cap, the, the, the death penalty. Uh, because you can never be sure that you're executing the right person. Now, there's, there's thousands of other reasons to oppose uh, the death penalty. Uh, but if you allowed yourself to believe that there's always another part of the story, you wouldn't kill anyone, ever. <laughs> um, you would always be asking yourself, what are the other possibilities here? Um, and I don't know if this is just this is something that's rooted in personality type, I do believe that anything we can do to reduce fear will help. And I, again, to return to something I've said a couple of times, insulting people who are different, even if they are powerful, is probably not the path uh, to reducing fear. Sure. Fi but, uh, yeah. And you, as you talk about Django, I, I see parallels with that same kind of well, Tarantino movies are kind of support the idea that violence is the answer. <laughs> and yeah. I think they often appeal to us because there is something in us that wants that. We uh -huh. want we want to see Hitler get machine gunned down sure. and burned up in the theater. Sure. Um and 
you know, we and we want to see the slave owners butchered. Um, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't lead to something better. It just That's, leads to something worse. <laughs> well, it's it it's it, it you know in the film in the films it always leads to closure and that's a lie because that doesn't happen in real life Hmm. uh, with violence what happens in real life with with violence is it just perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates so can you give us a few recommendations of what what are some films that you would say tell a better story and influence Hmm. toward us a, a better world yeah, um, sure. I'll, I'll start with some very, very recent ones. Um, I think that uh, mm, that's a really good question because it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> well, Spectre actually. As if you want to, you know, an out and out entertaining film that uh, I don't think is a great film, but it, it it does something quite wonderful in terms of how it deals with its villain. Um, Spectre's a, a, a great upper, a great opportunity. There's a one the, the best film I've seen this year is called "Listen to Me, Marlon." It's a documentary and, or really a piece of crafted nonfiction, which takes audio recordings of Marlon Brando's personal journals and marries them to clips from his films and archive footage of him uh, in the real world. And what I love about it is it's an iconic figure who has been uh, heretofore inscrutable you know brando didn't really talk about his personal life in in interviews Uh, but in this film it's so revelatory about um the struggle to be uh, uh, an influential person the struggle to live with the influence that he ended up having and how do you be an ethical person uh, with your power um and i think this is as as valid a question to someone who doesn't have any public profile at all uh, just as it is valid for Barack Obama, because we all have spheres of influence mm. and we all have inner struggles. Uh, are, are we going to live from uh, the inside out, as Parker Palmer calls it, or are we going to live for external reward? And uh, that question, how you answer that question, will determine uh, whether or not you're, you, you're going to become a violent person. Um, that's a very adult film, but to go to the other end of the, the, the spectrum, the most pleasurable, entertaining uh, experience I had in a movie theater this year was with Shaun the Sheep, which is a, a Shaun the Sheep movie, a wonderful British animated film from the same people who are behind the Wallace and Gromit movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, in terms of its physical comedy, it's as good as a Buster Keaton film it has some great critique of celebrity culture and lovely advocacy of having an inclusive community and again the way they deal with their villain um is is, let's just say it's highly influential on on specter um and uh i am i'm a great advocate of uh challenging the notion of there being a division between high culture and low culture. Uh, I, I love The Exorcist, a really scary adult movie. I love Eternity and a Day, uh, a really almost impenetrable, uh, philosophically uh, uh, rich 
challenging uh, Greek film. I love E.T., a family film about an alien coming to visit uh, that, that really masks a story about the impact of, of uh, parental abandonment uh, on a family. I love The Elephant Man, which is a, 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 a painful drama about what it is to be uh, m- marginalized. And I love Adam McGowan's film Exotica, uh, which is a film about uh, one of the most awful things that could possibly happen to anybody. And all of them um, you know, Greek highbrow, Spielbergian, populist, um, painful adult drama, and everything in between. They're united by the fact that each of them begin with the letter E. Uh, that's enough of a reason why we should see them. There's a lot of film critics out there who would say that a film like E.T. or a film like Shaun the Sheep isn't, isn't worthy of our uh, attention. And I don't think that's... I don't think that's a valid per- perspective at all. What's worthy of our attention is any sincere attempt at making beauty in the world. I hope that the conversations today have challenged you to see and understand art in a little bit of a different way, especially art's relationship to Christianity. I hope that it has stretched your ideas about how art can be used to help us understand God, to make the world a better place, and to allow us to express our humanity and express who we are in the world around us. If you'd like to learn more about the guests on the show today, you can see the work of Amina Brown at aminabrown.com. Amina is spelled amen with an A. Jay Beck and Tevye East's work and the Carnival Day Resistance can be found at carnivaldayresistance.com and Gareth Higgins you can find at garethhiggins.com including information about the Movies and Meaning Conference. Please check out the other Media Scorch podcasts at mediascorchpodcasts.com Leave a comment. Let us know what you think of some of the information that's being shared. or Leave some comments at the Facebook page. I'm Jason Weedle. Thanks for listening. There are chasms between the arts, activists, and faith worlds that I myself have uh, felt in my lifetime and have uh, worked. It's to um, integrate and it brings a lot of healing within me to uh, weave these worlds together and I think that there's a way in which uh, our work is diminished when that chasm remains um, so large for instance um, our our worship our um, uh, animating the Call of the Gospel and being faith community, that's um, without the art, that is um, dull.